Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, COVID-19 is dominating the news, as you might expect. What is the latest in the progression of this disease? How's the Canadian government handling it? We're going to talk about all of that. Hamilton Police Services Board yesterday dealt with their hate crime statistics. Deputy Chief Frank Bergen will join us to talk about that. And yesterday, Hamilton announced its second COVID-19 case. How is the city dealing with this and the pandemic? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. But to begin with, obviously, COVID-19 dominating the news cycle once again, uh, especially with uh, the concerns about the growing number of cases that are going on. And also, uh, with that number uh, comes uh, word that uh, a growing number of Canadian doctors are now urging the federal government to adopt more aggressive measures to contain the spread of the virus. As uh, Dr. David Jerlich uh, said in a tweet yesterday, the longer we uh, wait to discourage mass gatherings, the faster this is going to hit us. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Services uh, with the uh, University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time on a busy day. I'm glad you could join us today. My pleasure. Given some of the, the tweets and some of the, the, the things we're hearing from doctors, in your opinion, are, are, are we doing enough to, to try to, to stem this? Uh, we can't stop it, obviously. We're trying to control it. But the measures that we're taking so far, how effective are they? Well, I think what we're, we're seeing is an attempt to just slow slow the spread down. Um, and, you know, we could go to, uh, you know, complete stay home kind of policy like we're seeing in Italy. But I think what's happening is we're just seeing a rather measured response from public health at the moment. So if you look at the numbers, we're still not really seeing a lot of transmission. So we're we're in really good shape. I guess people are just keen to keep us that way. And the concern is just sort of explosion of cases that we saw in Italy. You know, we went from zero to 60 really quick over there. So um, the people who are recommending that people stay home, you know, that's, that's great for people who can, but a lot of people cannot. And so when public health has to make that kind of a recommendation, they have to weigh a lot of different things, um, you know, and, and there are people who really just can't stay home from work. And so it, there's a big economic and sort of social cost to making that kind of an announcement. So I think that's what we're seeing right now is just some caution around that. Some people are suggesting, though, that we're not going far enough. And, and you point to the Italian example of, uh, where even the prime minister over there has simply said, look, at, you know, we blew this and we should have been more proactive sooner. And uh, and look at what's happening. I mean, the death toll is just going out of control there, sadly. And we've saw that happen in China as well, although they seem to have it under control. But is is lockdown really the best policy here to try to do what, they, what needs to be done here? I think I think it's um you know it's maybe a little bit of a sledgehammer at this point in time, and obviously that can change uh, in a moment's notice. But I think you know, in order to maintain their credibility, I think public health is really trying to just be measured about this. And, um, you know, it's it's a hard call. It's a really hard call. So I would say, you know, if you can stay home, that's, that's great. And, and that will certainly help other people who still have to go to work, um, you know, to be able to maintain social distancing on public transit and things like that. So, um, you know, to the extent that it's possible, I think it probably is wise to curtail your social interactions right now, but there are people who can't, and, and that's still okay. Um, and, you know, if we can support them by just keeping people off transit at peak hours and things like that, that's all the better. 
Maybe I, I want to backtrack if I could for just a second here, because I'm as I look at some of the things I'm seeing on social media, some of the commentaries, uh, and some of the events, as you say, this is so fast-moving. Even within the last 24 hours, we've seen uh, some rapid changes on a global basis anyway. Mm-hmm. Do we get a? Do you think we have a grasp now? And I'm talking about the, this audience, North American audience here, as opposed to what they've already experienced in Europe and in Asia. Do we have a grasp of the severity of what we're dealing with here? I think that's still um, a little bit... Uh, a little bit hard to gauge, but I think we do know that uh, certainly children and people with with pretty good immune systems are going to be okay with this. It's really the, the people over 60 and people who have uh, other other issues like diabetes or have an immune system um, that's maybe slightly compromised. Those are the people that we're concerned about. So, um, you know, for those people, this is a, a pretty serious situation. But uh, I mean, we're still seeing the characterization that this is just this is just like the flu bug that we usually get every winter. What's the big deal? That that's yeah, no, that's that a bit of an not, oversimplification, isn't it? Yeah, this is not the flu. This is this is about ten times more severe than that. For and so we're going to see a lot more uh, people with severe complications from this than we do with the flu on an annual basis. So with that in mind, and, and I understand the characterization that, that many doctors have talked to us about, and many people with Health Canada uh, have tried to articulate here, that, uh, that for most of us, uh, you, you're right. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be fatal. There's going to be a few rough days, et cetera. We've, and some people have said they have very, very few symptoms at all. We know that uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, of course, uh, d- tweeted the other day that they, they tested positive, but they seem to be doing fine. They said aside from a bit of a cough and a bit of a fever, they seem to be all right. But mm-hmm. you, you don't know, though, from one person to another, do you? Because, I mean, some people that were quote-unquote healthy have died as a result of this. That's right. So we're still learning every day about how this virus uh, works and how it impacts our bodies. And so it's very hard to be making sweeping generalizations at the moment. We have some very broad data on who is most likely to, to not fare well with this, but we still don't know a lot. And so... You know, there are a lot of really smart people working on this, but part of the issue, too, is that none of us have immunity to this because it is a new virus. And so part of why, um, you know, people are saying, oh, it's just like the flu. Well, we've, oh, there's a, quite a lot of immunity out there to the flu already. Even if it's a new strain of flu, there is some protection from having had the flu or having had the flu shot from other strains. But this is a brand new, uh, a brand new bug. So we're dealing with people's immune systems that have, um, you know, there's no immunity to this in the community, which is a big part of why this is spreading so quickly and why it's impacting people hard. That's a valid point. We're all probably doing a lot more reading and research on this than we ever thought we would, but uh, because of the of the severity of what we're doing here and the magnitude of the reaction to it. But it was uh, one whose name escapes me, one microbiologist, this was on one of the American networks, said that uh, the numbers are low uh, for, for COVID-19 simply because, as you say, it's the new kid on the block. Uh, it's relatively new. It's only five or six months around. So uh, we don't know much about it. We don't know much about Our bodies don't know much about it either. So there's, it, it's, it's a wild card, really, at this stage, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, we're seeing that it, it, it's done there in China, but we know with other viruses, like influenza, that it can have a sort of what we call a second wave. And so that's what happened in the 1918 flu pandemic was 
we thought we were out of the woods and then boom, a second wave hit. And so we don't know whether that can happen with this virus. It is a completely different virus than the influenza virus, but, um, you know, it can mutate. Um, viruses can be characterized as sloppy and promiscuous. And uh, so they they do mutate and they do change. And so that's why we have to really not relax our vigilance around this, even when it looks like it's dying down. Um, and that's why you're seeing China maintain that sort of focus on the outbreak control. And and the the, the closures that we talked about, and, and, you know, professional leagues, I guess just about every athletic league, sports league, is shutting down in some way, shape, or form. Even the PGA, the Professional Golf Tour, has canceled mm-hmm. events for this. And, of course, the school closures here in Ontario, which I know a lot of people are concerned about, and, and it is causing some frustration and some angst. But but the sense I'm getting here, Professor, is that yeah, it's it's problematic, but it's necessary. In other words, the 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 fewer crowds we have, the fewer chance, the less the chances of transmission of this disease. Exactly. So it's it's really a simple uh, sort of algorithmic pattern that we see with the spread of disease like this. So um, the school closure is something that is not taken lightly. That is a really really like sort of measure of last resort, and and so in any pandemic scenario when they close the schools they're they are really concerned about the, the rapid spread of a virus and that's partly because even though children are not seemingly affected terribly badly by this virus they are um great spreaders of germs so <laughs> any <laughs> any parent knows that oh, yeah exactly anything so, that's going around school the parents will eventually get the kids are little petri dishes they are and they you know they they don't uh, maintain social distancing the way adults do so they're and, you know, they're, they tend to not wash their hands as much, although maybe that's changed in the last week. But anyway, so th- that decision is not taken lightly, and people are very well aware of the burden that that places on parents and the cost to the economy for people who can't go to work because now they have to stay home and take care of their kids. So, um, you know, putting into place uh, some kind of emergency daycare for people's kids who, who really do need to be going to work, like healthcare providers and frontline responders to this emergency, and other people who are essential to keep society functioning. We really need to be looking at daycare solutions for those kids. You know, when we see something like this, and, and you know, we went through the SARS thing here in southern Ontario uh, some years ago, uh, and I know that it's not a total comparison, apples to apples comparison, but uh, from a societal standpoint, it, 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 what I'm seeing here is very similar to a lot of the stuff we saw there. It's kind of like it's the best of times, the worst of times. We're seeing people come together and trying to help each other and, and, and try to create an understanding and maybe some support for each other, which is a great thing. Uh, and then we're seeing people, you know, hoarding materials and, you know, trying to sell them on the black market for profit and raising prices and things of this nature. It's just uh, the, the, the the result of, of the human response to this is uh, it's at one time very heartening and at the other time is very depressing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, we do know that people's response has a huge impact on how these things play out. And reciprocity and solidarity are fundamental to how we have to respond to this. And so people who are trying to make a profit off of this, you know, they're really pretty much the scum of the earth. Um, (laughs) We need to be pulling together. We need to be making sure that our neighbor down the street is taken care of. We need to be putting those um, social supports for ourselves into place. You know, is there somebody who can take care of our kids if we fall ill, someone to walk the dog, someone to run out and grab us? Uh, some toilet paper if there is any uh these kinds of things you know and that 
making sure that we have those social connections can really help alleviate some of the anxiety that we're seeing. And, you know, Toronto is is um, fortunate to the extent that we've had a sort of dry run for this with SARS, even though that was a hospital-based infection. It was never in the community. Um, we did get a big heads up with that, and we have done a tremendous amount of pandemic preparedness because of that. And there are people in this area of the world who have a lot of experience in managing this kind of situation. So we're, we're pretty pretty lucky to be in Ontario and in Canada. Well, and kind of proud, too, uh, for the story that we heard uh, that broke last night. Uh, Global News carried this, of course, is that uh, we know we're ready for a vaccine. And, and I know that the officials keep telling us that that's probably a year, year and a half away. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was a breakthrough of the research team, uh, a, a cooperative team at McMaster University and the University of Toronto, uh, have now identified the the agent responsible for uh, COVID nineteen, and, and that doesn't mean necessarily that something's going to happen tomorrow. But that's major, right? and, and the work that's going on uh, right here in southern Ontario is uh, is actually it's it's groundbreaking and and world breaking, really. Absolutely, and you know we have we have people in Toronto here at the University of Toronto Joint Center for Bioethics who have been world leaders on leading the ethics of all of this. You know, we've been working with the WHO for many years on pandemic planning ethics. And, you know, so we are sort of a powerhouse when it comes to this kind of public health emergency response planning. And so I think we can take some comfort from that. And we may end up seeing what we saw with the uh, the last sort of stock market bubble um, in 2008, where Canada actually, because of their policies, has fared much better economically. I think we'll probably see that happen again, where Canada is is really well prepared for this kind of situation, and it can be a real leader in terms of how to how to do this the right way. And as we hear the uh, well, the stories sometimes contradicting stories uh, from health officials and, and politicians. Sadly, some people are still getting their health advice from politicians. I'm not quite sure what benefit there is to that, but anyway, uh, I, I, for people that think, well, what can I do? I'm only one person. You know, I'm, I'm feeling a little paranoid here. The, the simplest of things that the doctors keep telling us, really, Professor, is wash your hands and, and, and you know, hygiene. It's a personal hygiene, things of that nature. It's, it's, it's our own little defense mechanism. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, a lot of the time when we tell people they have control over their own health, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a misconception but in this particular case it's actually pretty easy to help yourself if you have the ability to stay home and keep washing your hands and stop touching your face so you know we can be empowered by that but we also need to make sure that we have those sort of um, support mechanisms in place from our neighbors and our family to help us if we if we do need to reach out to them. Professor Allison Thompson, uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time and adding some clarity to uh, to what's been going on over the last couple of days. It can get a little frustrating and a little uh, contradictory sometimes, and it's always great to get your voice in here. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Well, that's uh, Professor Thompson, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. Uh, that's big news. Uh, it, I know we've been carrying this, the story here on CHML through the course of the morning, but this is a, a cooperative team between McMaster University and University of Toronto, uh, and identifying the agent responsible for COVID-19 uh, is is incredible. They said uh, it's one of the key tools in the, the moving toward eventually a vaccine, and uh, that's the first step to be able to identify what you're doing, and that happened right here in our backyard at uh, the University of Toronto and McMaster University. Uh, we'll continue to obviously follow what's going on with uh, that team. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few days ago, we talked a uh, preliminary discussion anyway about a uh, hate crimes report that was coming to the Police Services Board uh, this week. And uh, we had speculated there was some information that was already uh, out there uh, about the number of hate crimes and the targeted groups. And, uh, well, no big surprises here, I think, when you you look at this. The report was presented to the Police Services Board yesterday. And uh, black and Jewish communities are the most targeted in hate-motivated incidents in Hamilton, according to these numbers. Uh, and uh, 92 combined hate-motivated crimes uh, incidents, uh, uh, that's what they said in the report, of those, approximately 34 incidents targeted members of the black community. 29 reported incidents uh, of the Jew- uh, targeted Jewish community. Uh, and it says here, according to the report once again, uh, in 2019, only eight uh, targeted uh, identities for the LGBTQ uh, community, which seems a little low. And I know the police says they made the presentation yesterday. Uh, we're the first to point that out. So what kind of a story does this tell us, and where do we go going forward on this? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Frank Bergen, Deputy Chief for Hamilton Police Services. Uh, uh, Deputy Chief, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you on the program again. Uh, good morning, Bill. What's your, what's your read into this as you look at the numbers from from this report? Um, well, and we presented to the board yesterday, as you know, and, and uh, Detective Corrigan um, um, represented well. The, the, the reality is, and you were just leaving us with that, um, is that within the uh, 2S and LGBTQI plus community, um, those numbers are low. Um, but the reality is what we've heard, and, and we've met with um, community representatives a couple times and, and hope to continue to meet with them, uh, there are circumstances uh, and it's been pointed out that uh, members of the community may be sitting at home and, and do not feel comfortable uh, interacting with uh, the police uh, and for a variety of reasons. And, and as such, they're not coming forward. In some cases, they're, they're fearful of police. So this, this proactive step uh, to enhance our ability and leverage technology uh, was something we felt would answer that need. It is not the, the final solution, Bill. Um, this is a whole of service, a holistic community approach uh, that requires us to look at opportunities to support um, victims. And, and however that's defined, um, uh, it will be us having the ability to be open to manage those calls. When we've talked to a number of those groups uh, that are identified here, and I know you've had those discussions as well, of course, uh, the, the path of, and, and the concerns, that the comments that we hear invariably fall into basically two basic categories. Uh, one, you're right, they feel somewhat intimidated talking to police. Uh, the other one is they just don't like police. That's all there is to it. And, and I know there are deep-seated and, and long historical reasons why this is happening, but it's there, and it's, it's a huge stumbling block for you to try to build those bridges in the community. The the don't like police thing. Let's let's spend a moment on that. Sure, and I, sure. And I also want to I want to get back to and and if you don't mind as a reminder, uh, I thought Dr. Emil Joseph was bang on in his conversation and and certainly talking about third party review and having that access and and working with HCCI and other partners uh, to capture human rights violations, to capture racism, racism, discrimination. So let's not leave that. But but let's talk about people who don't like the police. And, and in many cases, and I don't want to be crass, um, but in some of these cases, there, there has been an industry uh, of being able to articulate uh, anarchy to activism. And, and, I, and I'm looking at a, a series of things throughout the year uh, that, that have given an overall sense of, of, of distrust and, and in many cases have attached 
um, the, the HEAT moniker to it. But, but it, whether it's a wet suet wet and block in, block, uh, blockade, whether it's a, uh, a climate march, which is very important, but, but a climate march of, of 15, 16, 17-year-olds who, who truly believe we need to change and prepare um, our, our, our ways, uh, being hijacked by, by a core group of people, um, marching on, on the, the, the mayor's house, um, uh, causing uh, the, the grief that we saw certainly in the aftermath of the pride, um, and going on and, and, and looking at the front forecourt. So, so that energy and that, that core group that is not going to like us regardless um, should not uh, uh, should not overshadow uh, the fact that there are people out there and the large, vast majority of our people um, are doing what is necessary to make sure that there is a sense of well-being, there's a sense of community safety, and, and we, we're trying to now look at a proactive step to break into that other group that feels disenfranchised. Well, and what, I want to talk about that, and then we're going to get back into some of the numbers about this. And, and one, of course, is is the, 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 the online presence that you've created. Maybe you could explain what, what that process is and how it's supposed to work. Well, currently right now, and the statistics we've seen in the last couple of years, and, and as you see over the last 10 years, um, in the average, it's, it's approximately 128 calls coming in. So even the 26% reduction year over year is, is nothing to truly hang our hat on. But we've had the ability to have police officers, um, you know, uh, go to a call um, to, to get that graffiti, to get, to get uh, images and, and, and photographs, et cetera, investigate. We've had the ability that police officers uh, could meet someone at a front station uh, uh, coming into the front door. Um, uh, so this is an ability now for someone in the comfort of their home, uh, someone at the public library, uh, someone on their friend's laptop has the ability to go online a portal and, and now articulate uh, what is the situation. Um, thanks to uh, the, the assistance of our community, even after launch, we, we were less than 24 hours into our launch and, and it was pointed out to us that, uh, in fact, we had a technical glitch, meaning once you finally got to the definitions of what is a hate crime, what is a hate bias motivated incident, the reality is we got to the final button and it said hate crime. And, and so thank you to, to those people bringing that to our attention. And, and so we were able to modify that. Um, as I said yesterday at the board, um, this is one area where within the realm of our authority to investigate, to do intake, uh, there are many other areas that are not captured. Uh, we welcome and we encourage what is that support is Dr. Emil Joseph and, and certainly Cujo HCCI, um, because if it doesn't meet the threshold of a crime, and that has always been the challenge, what is there for the victim? What is the support? We have limited resources where we can assist them, but if they're already um, having trepidations about their comfort with us, isn't it great to hear that more people are willing to come forward and actually look at um, abilities to support uh, people who feel uncomfortable? And we welcome that. And so our next iteration, and, and what I'm hoping is once we see uh, what the community is coming to the table with, what we see with what the communication strategy coming out of the city will be, um, we believe that now we have the ability to link uh, other resources and other partners into this. Um, as you can see in our pamphlet, I'm, I hope you have one. Uh, you belong here, hate doesn't. And, and helping make Hamilton free, uh, hate free, is, is a whole of community, a holistic approach, not just simply um, at the feet of police.
with uh, Deputy Chief Frank Bergen. You, you've hit on something that I, I've heard as a consistent theme, and I, I want to spend a little more time on that. And, and I don't think it's a misinterpretation. I think it, it's there's a, a frustration here, uh, and you've just identified and tried to uh, to, to define uh, the difference between a hate motive hate motivated crime and and a hate bias incident. Uh, victims of either uh, are are just uh, as in their minds anyway, and sometimes physically are just as offended and just as, as as bothered by these things and sometimes injured by these sorts of things. And there's a frustration there because what I'm hearing a lot when these things occur, and even if it is a quote-unquote incident as opposed to a crime, they're saying, well, police didn't do anything about it. Uh, and I know yeah, that you have to work within the criminal code. Uh, a lot of these times there's no you know middle ground here. There's no gray area in situations like that. But given that reality that you can't lay charges because they didn't really break a crime, even though they, their, their behavior was egregious, how do, you, how do you try to assuage the concern and, and the, the, the ill feeling that's created as a result of that? And again, it does fall at our feet, and that's why I say we welcome the further support that looks like it's coming shortly. Um, but, but with regards to some of the activities in 2019, um, the Hamilton Synagogue on Aberdeen Avenue and looking at the Beth Jacobs Synagogue and the hateful messages that are spray-painted on their walls, um, the arrest was made, and it turned out, as you're probably aware, that it was used within the community itself. And, and but what was wonderful that that evening of, of celebration to go there and to see the chalk art from from the larger community that actually embraced and, and made sure that that comfortable um, feeling was there that there was a reminder that you're not alone. We've we've had hate bias um, graffiti, a, a lack of a better description, a, a very active gentleman with a sharpie running around and just putting just distasteful, uh, ignorant messages and all that. So we we made arrests and, and they're incremental at best. Um, but again, it, it's as it's, it's good as the intake that comes in. Um, as I go back to, it, this is a, a, a community uh, approach that we are welcoming. We have a role. Uh, Dr. Joseph had said uh, that there, there is a lack of faith within the, uh, the realm of authority, but, but he also mentioned that, that not all of these complaints um, go into the realm of, of hate. And, and so, therefore, we are limited in what we can do. We are limited, as you said correctly, Bill, um, within the parameters of the criminal code. Uh, but it's, uh, it's now us openly saying it's, it's about a community partnership uh, at all levels to say that we have the ability to, again, demonstrate the actual amazing opportunities and, and the amazing people of the city of Hamilton. But there's the frustration, and I know we've talked with Dr. Joseph about this. He was just on the program a couple of days ago and reiterated a number of things that you've just mentioned here, is that if, if, it, if the incident does fall within the crime of an, or the realm of an incident as opposed to a crime, uh, the victim uh, sometimes doesn't make that differentiation and simply says, well, the cops didn't do anything, so why should I report anything else again? Uh, and, and there goes the frustration. And, and I understand that, that there's not much you can do. You can't change the criminal code, but at the same time, uh, victims are looking for satisfaction in situations like that, and they, they don't seem to be getting it a lot of the time. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm perplexed, and I'm sure you are, as to how we can actually address this. Yeah, and, I, and it's, that's exactly the point I would think that all of us are saying, is, is to define what that level of satisfaction is. It's, it's bottom line, customer service. 
and, and, if, and if customer service is not um, um, warmly received or, or, or welcome, then, then if we're not able to deliver that based on limitations of definition, uh, as, you, as you well know, uh, a hate crime is criminal offense, but it then breaks down to what is the actual motivated by um, prejudice on race, national or ethnic origin, language, color, religion, sex, age, uh, mental, physical disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression, whereas the, whereas the, the nuance and, and what causes greed is the greater um, category speaks to the incident. Uh, and it may be motivated by the same factors but did not reach that threshold of a criminal offense. So the other element to this is let's talk about composition. And, and again, I've heard this from some of the groups as well. Uh, I know Hamilton Police Services does a, a, a great job of recruiting, and, and they do make attempts to go out into the community uh, to try to recruit from different groups that, that make up this this fabulous community of ours. Uh, are you succeeding in that? I mean, is, is, is police services reflective of this community? Uh, I think we are, and, and I think we could do better, and I think everybody in, in the policing community speaks to that, and we, we, at the end of the day, would all also say we're not certain that we know when we've arrived and, and when we've got there. Um, I know that as, as we look at our intake, I know as we shake the hands and welcome into our organization the men and women, both on sworn and civilian, uh, language skills, etc. Um, yesterday at the board, uh, what an honor to, to listen to uh, Jazz um, Dylan and and, and all the amazing stuff she brings to the table, uh, a person with an incredible background and, and certainly um, a great deal of administrative and academic uh, skills, but about language skills, um, Punjabi and Hindu and Urdu, and, and, and also someone who has actually grown up in our community and become a person that has immigrated in the 90s into Stony Creek, but has now decided to also stay within our community. So it's speaking to our commitment. Uh, and this is, a, if you don't mind, Bill, um, we're hiring. And, and, and Bill, this is a great opportunity to let you know uh, that, that policing and, and, and the world of policing, whether it's in the civilian side or sworn, is an incredible career. I've certainly uh, enjoyed my tenure, and, and if all your listeners get one thing out of it is we're open, we're a learning organization, we're an organization that wants to work with partners, but we're also an organization that needs to grow, and, and if you and, and your listeners uh, have people who would like to apply, either contact me directly, go online, um, we have a, a very robust recruiting team that's willing to sit down and, and, and map out a course. Um, of, of uh, good career. And, and when we go back to mapping it out uh, about hate, uh, etc., we've purposely um, done the old GPS logo about you belong here, hate doesn't, uh, but also you belong in our organization because if you can bring skills and, and language and culture to our organization that can make us better, we welcome that. As we, uh, my time is just about up here, but I'm, I just want to spend a few more minutes talking about the numbers here. Uh, and the numbers are the numbers, and, and this indicates that there's been a reduction from year to year in the number of hate crimes. But as uh, Detective Corrigan uh, mentioned when he made the presentation of the Police Services Board yesterday, uh, especially when it comes to uh, to the incidents reported against the, the LGBTQS community, uh, that they're underreported. It is, is it your feeling, Frank, that generally a lot of these hate crimes of, of all brands are underreported? It, it is, it, and uh, there are several reasons why hate bias incidents are not reported, and, and people may, may feel the crime was not important, or the chances of police apprehending the suspects are low. That speaks to Bill what, what their level of trust in our, our commitment to that is. Some victims 
see the incident as a personal matter since it may involve a family or a colleague or they may have a feeling that blame or embarrassment being targeted. Um, victims may not understand that they have been victimized or they have in, to, may endeavor to solve the issue themselves. So we, we've got to sort of spin, and, and this may be the opportunity, um, and, and, but also the opportunity, but the awareness that, that if you and I are speaking next year on the, uh, the eve of a hate report going into 2020 and, and we're in 2021, uh, maybe we also have to say that if those numbers are, are double or, or, or they have grown by 50%, we can't assume and nor should we then suggest uh, that hate has grown, but we should actually say that we've built a mechanism, we've built a trust, we've built a partnership that allows people to have this conversation. And, and if they have the conversation, uh, I think the strength in numbers and I, and I think that what that will demonstrate is, again, that's what is community. Community is having the ability to talk, have the ability to find an off-ramp when you're when you're alone and when you're in when you're fear where you have fear. So I actually would think in, in 2021 when we speak about this again, and I'm always open to speak about it throughout the year. But but let's look at let's look at more people coming forward and, and more people getting the resources, the support, and, and that enhanced partnership to look after um, people who feel isolated in our community. Uh, that's not what community is. Community is all of us, uh, and, and whether it's the holistic approach, or but understanding it, it takes a village. And that, that I'm using <laughs> an American term, and I'm sorry, but but it's all of us who have that responsibility to make people feel safe and, and a sense of well-being. I got one email uh, after I had Dr. Joseph on the show earlier this week, uh, and I just wanted you to address this uh, as briefly as you could. Uh, the essence of it was, it said, look, this is a great conversation, but it's usually just a two-day conversation after this report comes out, and then everything goes back to normal. Uh, I, I guess the, the impetus here is how do the police services maintain th that dialogue through the course of the year and, and build on those relationships? As I've said yesterday at the board, and, I, and I'll say it again, is we welcome working uh, with Dr. Joseph and his research. He, he speaks about iReport, which is out of um, Ireland. Uh, I know the great work that Cujo is, is doing. Uh, we are sitting down. We work with um, we work with Sasha about Take Back the Night. Uh, we work with um, and already um, trying to uh, work with Pride. Uh, we are working with the city uh, on, on those communications and making sure that we can change the tone of the forecourt of City Hall. Uh, so at all layers, uh, Bill, this does not sit on some shelf. This is not a report, to your point, that is just dusted off annually. Um, this is part of our daily conversations with our community at large because it affects us all. So we will continue uh, and, and we will continue to grow. We will continue to be available to be available at those tables, to be available at coffee conversations, uh, whatever it requires us to do, we are available and we will keep this topic alive. Deputy Chief uh, Frank Bergen. Frank, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the local aspect of what's happening, because uh, obviously, let's face it, COVID-19 is on everybody's mind. Uh, it's not just something that's happening over there someplace. It's real. It's happening right here in our community, as we found out earlier this week. So what is the city doing, and how does the city handle and react to uh, to uh, something as, as dangerous, frankly, I think it's probably the apt word here, as uh, COVID-19? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Public Health, of course, here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, doctor, thanks for the time. Very busy week for you. Appreciate you t joining us today. 
Good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be on. Was there an inevitability, Doctor, that this was going to happen here? I mean, when it was going on all over the place, as I mentioned in, the, in my intro here, uh, oftentimes we hear about these things, and it's something that happens someplace else, and we kind of sit here and say, well, thank God that's not going on here. It's going on everywhere now. Sure, absolutely. You know, and we, we follow these things as they go forward. That first phase that we're always working on is the phase that we call containment. So everybody's trying to limit the spread from wherever it starts out. You know, in this case in China, um, and, you know, there are cases that occur elsewhere, again, trying to limit spread, limit spread. And, you know, it's been challenging with this one. We've seen spread continue across the world. Um, our focus still locally is trying to um, contain as much as we possible, as much as, as possible, um, and limit that spread and make sure that uh, if we do start having community transmission, which we don't have as of yet, that we are, we don't have any signs of that, that we are, again, trying to slow down transmission as much as possible. And, you know, some people may say, well, you know, yeah, it's really not a big deal here yet, or it doesn't seem to cause that that uh, severe of an illness compared to something like SARS or Ebola, and that's true. It isn't. It is milder than those are. But at the same time, there are people who will get quite sick with this, people who are, especially those that are older, those with chronic diseases like heart disease or diabetes or people with weakened immune systems, and they will need uh, potentially uh, more care in hospital or even critical care. And so we want to slow that down in hopes of reducing the number of people who are ill and if they do need that care, to make sure that that care is available. I mean, there's a human element to this, certainly, and that's that's front and center, of course, I know, with the work that you and your staff do. Uh, but there are mathematics involved in this, too, and, and some of the numbers that we've seen crunch, Doctor, over the last week or so, uh, both sides of the border are, are a little daunting. I mean, even our own uh, federal government and, and uh, Department of Health suggested that uh, it, by their estimates, uh, anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of the population are going to be affected by this. Uh, and you, you don't know who those people are going to be and the impact it's going to have on each individual. I mean, you know, there's a perception here that, well, it's only the frail and the elderly that, or those with pre-existing conditions. Uh, some quote-unquote healthy people have already died from this around different parts of the world. So it's, it's, it's probably not sensible to make those kind of generalizations and say, well, I'm not one of them, so I'm going to be okay. Well, I think that's the thing, and it, this isn't just the case with COVID-19, as we're seeing. We see this, too, with things even like the common uh, virus influenza. And I think people need to keep that in mind as they're considering this. And it is another time for us to step back and think about how we approach approach any infectious disease. We don't really want to catch those. We don't want them to, to spread around. Uh, we know that that happens with people with influenza. Again, it's more common that somebody who's older, who's got other chronic conditions, who are have weakened immune systems, that they're more likely to get severely ill and even potentially die. Um, but it does happen in people who are otherwise healthy and well and younger. And so similarly for COVID-19, we want to, uh, ideally you don't get this infection. Um, if you do, then, you know, staying home is really important so you don't give it to others. Taking really good measures to wash your hands, to not communicate, can, uh, spread it along to other family members. Um, taking all those measures are really important. And, and we'll talk about some of those preventative measures in just a couple of seconds here. But the, the reality here is that, uh, you know, they talk about the severity. And I'm still seeing comments on social media from people saying, yeah, this is just like the flu. What's the big deal? But most of the flu strains, uh, for most of us, uh, usually 24 to 48 hours, you're starting to feel better. You maybe don't go back to work right away, but the worst of it's long over. Uh, my understanding from uh, from the, the description of some of the cases that, that have already happened in other parts of the world, uh, this thing can hang on for 10 to 14 days at least. 
Yeah, we're still trying to understand exactly what this illness looks like, and we're getting better and better information. The level of collaboration around the globe is really quite remarkable. It's great to see. Uh, I would say with flu, actually, a lot of people are sick for more like a week um, at a time or longer. And uh, But this one, it, you know, certainly we, we're seeing that some people are sick for longer. We are seeing that some people have mild symptoms. Um, so we're still understanding that whole range in terms of what this means for us. But again, I come back to that piece about, um, you know, even if you're lucky enough to get away with it just being mild, it has implications for others that are around you. And uh, we don't want to see that spread. We should also mention, and I know that uh, we've been talking about this on the news, and I, Doctor, I'm not going to drag you into the toilet paper uh, fiasco that's going on, uh, nor the rationale behind it. Well, I don't think there is any rationale behind it, but it's worth repeating that uh, that when we're talking about uh, COVID-19, this is a respiratory uh, virus ailment. It's, it's, it has nothing at all to do with the digestive tract or anything else. Well, we're still, as I said, Bill, we're still totally, you know, fully understanding it. Certainly, it's primarily a respiratory spread um, uh, virus. Um, we'll know for sure exactly whether there's any other very minor routes that transmission could uh, occur via. It's certainly not primarily spread in any other way. Um, it's very interesting. I was in the grocery store my, myself last night and, and noting that that particular paper products aisle was pretty much empty. I think, you know, my bottom line on these things is that if people are paying attention to their, to hygiene, to cleaning things well, to being thoughtful about those things, that's a good thing. We need to make sure, though, that people aren't hoarding supplies. That just makes uh, things more difficult. And for those who truly are sick and need those things, not having access to them when when they do need them. So please, you know, take what you need as you need it. Um, use good hygiene, so, uh, you know, what in, in terms of respiratory hygiene and all other measures of hygiene. And certainly, you know, back to those basic me- uh, messages about staying healthy. We do best when our bodies are healthy, when we get rest, when we exercise regularly, when we eat properly. And so let's really focus on the things we can do to keep healthy. Well, I know you and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago when this story was just starting to become uh, top of the news. And uh, you mentioned it at that time, and I think it probably still bears repeating, that our role is, as individual citizens, uh, as you say, for personal hygiene, washing hands, things of that nature, really the same stuff that, that, that you preach to us every year about the flu season. I mean, if you want to try to avoid that or mitigate the damage, uh, we, that's stuff we should be doing every day anyway, but I guess we have to be reminded of it every now and then. That's right. You know, washing your hands often with soap and water, avoiding close contact with people who are sick, staying home from work if you're sick, staying home from public events and gatherings, Staying home from healthcare facilities if you're sick. Don't go to those. Um, covering your your mouth with your sleeve or with a tissue. Uh, you know, cleaning and disinfecting f- uh, frequently. Those are all things that are important to do every day. Let's talk about your role and, and the role of other medicals, medical officers of health uh, right across the province and the country, I suppose, as, as we go through this. As we say, there is no s- vaccine for this. Uh, you can't cure it. Uh, you want to be able to contain it and, and if possible, mitigate uh, the growth of this, flattening the curve, I think is the phrase everybody seems to be using these days. Uh, individually, we have a responsibility, but overall, from a community standpoint, what are you monitoring to, to for, and what do you have to see or what hope, hopefully you never see that, where you say, okay, we have to ramp up that responsibility and do some of the things uh, that other jurisdictions are doing, i.e. closing schools, closing public uh, buildings, things of that nature. So this is, of course, a, a countrywide um, coordination that's going on, whether um, between the chief medical officers of health across the province with the Public Health Agency of Canada, our own medical officers with 
um, our chief medical officer of health here and with the Ontario Health Agency and the broader Ministry of Health, we're all working together to understand the, the situation and respond to it. And we do have um, uh, guidelines in terms of what we would do when um, in, and watching, looking for, detecting cases that are happening, detecting spread through um, some focused testing. So, for example, in the hospitals in particular, swabs that are being taken for other reasons, like for people who they think might have flu, those are being tested just to make sure if uh, community transmission starts that we're picking it up. Our role has been largely around contact tracing and management of cases. So for people who are confirmed to have COVID-19, we're looking to make sure other contacts are aware that they're isolated. We're monitoring people who've come from abroad who are self-isolating and answering lots and lots of questions from healthcare workers and, and others. And then, you know, looking to see what happens. And, and uh, we're trying to still, as I said, maintain containment. Um, certainly we've seen success in other countries in the world like South Korea where when they've remained really focused on trying to contain, they've managed to, to reduce the number of cases compared to places like China. And so we're focused there. But you see us starting to talk more about issues like school closures. So yesterday, the Minister of Education gave the directive to close the schools for a further two weeks after March break. The Chief Medical Officer, David Williams, started talking about you know cancelling large public gatherings, um, really thinking about gatherings that involve 250 people or more. Um, there's a whole risk assessment approach that it, the Public Health Agency of Canada has put out there to think about, you know, who's coming to your event? Are they coming from abroad? Um, who is attending your event? Are they people who are at highest risk? How, you know, what kind of event is it? Is it a, an outdoor bike race with no pre-party and no after-party? Um, or is it uh, an event in a closed space with everybody sitting together? You know, all of those things are coming into play, and so we're encouraging people who are um, considering any of those kinds of events to contact us and go through that assessment. Um, certainly for people who are at high risk, we're suggesting that they really look at whether they um, need to or want to attend any of those sorts of events um, you know, because of the risks involved. And similarly for people who are critical uh, workers, people like paramedics, police, you know, Peel in particular has put this message out about think about those kinds of large gatherings and whether or not to attend at them because we really need them to be here uh, focused on the work and the response. So you're beginning to see what we call public health measures or social distancing being put into play in this situation um, to prevent the spread of illness. Doctor, who should be tested? That, that seems to be a very contentious item these days. A uh, limited amount and limited resources, obviously, for this, and not everybody, I, I would think, needs to be tested. Uh, you've talked about those that might have, as you say, pre-existing conditions. We were talking about frail and elderly. I guess we, we should also include people with autoimmune diseases uh, who would probably be more uh, uh, prone for these sorts of things as well. Uh, if they're the ones that start feeling symptoms, are they are they the ones that first, is, is, is the portal here for this whole system to for the treatment of the, a family doctor as opposed to an ER? So the, there's some key uh, changes that actually happened overnight. One of those was the uh, messaging about that based on the science that we have right now, that we really do see that this is spread by, by a method we call droplet um, spread. And so a change in the, the precautions that are needed in, in the healthcare management of anybody who has this illness or you're worried may have this illness, that's good news because... Um, N95 masks were becoming in short supply and we need them for other diseases and in circumstances where they, they really are, are required. Um, so it does expand and make it a little easier in terms of who can do it, but we still know that, that we need to be very mindful of the supplies for, for even providing that level of precautions. So that's, that was one piece of, of good news in order to help us 
um, with the situation and who can do what. But the uh, guidance also changed around testing. So whereas testing before, um, we're still looking at making sure we can monitor for community spread. In terms of on an individual basis, where the testing recommendations are really focused on those who are most likely to have COVID-19. So either somebody who's a contact with a traveler, we also want to make sure that people are at high risk, like the people you just mentioned are tested, people in long-term care facilities, um, people who are um, healthcare workers, that they are tested. And so there's a new set of criteria around that so that uh, that we can make sure we're preserving our testing and resources for those who are most um, in need and for those who we um, will then need to go on and, and do other measures. For example, if somebody was found to be ill in a long-term care facility, it's going to have some pretty significant impacts for that site in terms of the outbreak management approach. So other testing in people other than that is really on a, an exceptional basis. Um, there's some guidance that's going out to uh, healthcare practitioners and uh, we're encouraging them to, to call us if they think there's an exception that needs to be made. Very quickly, when we hear the the experts uh, from Center for Disease Control or, or even Health Canada uh, make a statement like this is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, the the word worse is is somewhat troubling. Does that mean more incidence of it or a more severe strain? So I don't think at this point that worse is really re- really talking about a change in the severity of this particular strain. That's always something we look for. There's there as I said the degree of scientific collaboration around this and monitoring of this is really high and really good. And so we're always monitoring to see if anything shifts with this or changes. Um, but in terms of, of worse, I think by and large what we're talking about is the number of people who are going to be impacted. Um, so, you know, individually whether or not you're going to get sick, but also what that's going to mean for employers and, you know, planning what will they do if there's a number of people who are off sick? Um, how are they going to continue to operate their businesses? Um, and thinking, too, about the kind of measures that we may use, such as the school closures, um, in order to limit that transmission and so having to, be pla- having to plan and be prepared to deal with the implications of those sorts of things. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program and, and to, to add some clarity to a uh, some what confusing discussion, I think, that we've had uh, on a national and international basis as this evolves. Always great to hear from you. Thanks so much. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bill. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, of course, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.